live from Lemert Park, USA. I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you to download our app right now at KBLA 1580. Download the app. And take us to the anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time, but only by downloading our app right now at KBLA 1580. Uh, should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the website, the Anchor uh, website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the app and uh, the podcast that is and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. Let me do that again. The app allows you to listen anywhere in the world live in real time. But if you miss us in real time, that's what I was trying to say. Get it together, Tavis. It's early. Uh, the podcast is the way to go. And you can listen to this program anytime at your leisure uh, by checking out the podcast. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today. In our second hour, do elite colleges perpetuate a system that consistently favors the wealthy and discriminates against people of color and the poor. Are elite colleges actually a driver of residential and school segregation that contribute to the nation's increasing social and economic inequality? In short, do elite colleges divide us as a nation? A no-holds-barred conversation with Evan Mandery about how America's elite colleges help to keep the rich rich, making it harder than ever to fight poverty, economic immobility, and inequality in our two. A serious take on these esteemed uh, institutions, many of them in the Ivy League. In our third hour, if you are experiencing chronic fatigue, raise your hand. Okay, mine is mine slightly up. <laughs> Everybody in the booth, I see their hands are up as well. If you're experiencing chronic fatigue and your hand is up, good for you. International wellness expert Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith will join us in hour three to help us unpack and, more importantly, access the seven types of rest available to us that can help us live better lives in 2023 and beyond. But in this first hour today, most of us are aware, I think, that uh, aware of the transatlantic slave uh, trade, uh, especially in this audience, that brought millions of Africans to the Western Hemisphere. But most of us do not realize, perhaps, that a domestic slave trade also existed in the U.S., uh, as well. In fact, by the time slavery was abolished in 1865, more than one million enslaved people had been forcibly moved across state lines against their own will in their own country, and thousands more, hundreds of thousands more, had been sold within individual states. For a conversation right now about the nuances of America's internal slave trade, please be joined now by University of Alabama historian Dr. Joshua D. Rothman. Professor Rothman, how are you today, sir? I'm very well, Travis. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing the best I can. Good to have you on. Thank you for the time. Glad we got the hour. A whole lot to talk about in uh, uh, in the next 60 minutes here. Uh, let me start with this. Um, it, it seems to me, as I suggested a moment ago, uh, that we spend a lot of time, I shouldn't say a lot of time, maybe not as much time as we should, but we have spent uh, a, a great deal more time, let me put it that way, talking uh, historically about the transatlantic slave trade but not so much about America's internal slave trade. Before I get into the details and particulars of that, why do you think we talk about one and seem to ignore or be unaware of the other? 
Yeah, you're certainly right. And one thing that I've discovered in the course of doing my own work is um, how many people don't seem to even be aware there was a domestic slave trade. Now, once they're once they're sort of told a little bit about it, you, you can see sort of a light bulb go off, and they're like, "Oh, right, of course." Um, but I, I think that uh, there are probably a, a couple of reasons why it's certainly lesser known. Uh, probably the, the deepest reason goes back to the defense of slavery itself in the 19th century, where you know when white Southerners came under attack for slavery as a consequence of the rising anti-slavery movement, one of the things that they really didn't want to talk about was the buying and selling of the slave people. Doctor so Ro- Rothman, Doctor Roth- let me let me jump yeah. in. You don't you don't sound so good. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because you're in a room. It's kind of hollow, and you may be on a speakerphone. Let me do this. Let me let me put Odell on the line with you. We're gonna get this right. I don't want to spend the next hour. I can't stand not being able to hear my guests, and that's not good for the audience as well. So you're not sounding so good. So let me do this. When we come forward, we're gonna get this phone line straight. Uh, not the best way I want. Not the best way to start a show. Get this phone line straight, and we'll continue our conversation. You're listening to KBLA Talk Radio conversations that matter. matter you're listening to tavis smiley on kbla talk 1580 you are indeed and we're glad to have you in with us in this first hour our phone number 1-800-920-1580 1-800-920-1580 let's try this one more again with dr joshua d rothman of university of alabama historian talking in this hour i hope i think if this phone line is right <laughs> uh, about uh, america's internal slave trade not just the transatlantic slave trade that of course brought millions of Africans, means of our ancestors to the Western Hemisphere. Dr. Rothman, let's do it one more again. How are you doing? How you, how you doing, sir? <laughs> I'm doing well. How's the sound right now? You sound infinitely better. That's what I wanted. I don't oh, know. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah, I'm we, so glad to hear yeah, it. I apologize for that. No, no, no. We can't go through a whole hour, man, and you not be heard. That that defeats the purpose. So so uh, let's do this again. My, my first question that you were starting to answer um, was uh, why it is that we have spent, uh, you know, a, a great deal of time, uh, again, maybe not as much as we should have over the years, talking about wrestling with this transatlantic slave trade, but not so much conversation about America's internal slave trade. We'll get into the details and particulars of that as we move forward. But why, why, do, you, why do you think that is the case? Uh, so I, I think there's a number of reasons for that. But one of the sort of core reasons goes back to the way that white Southerners defended slavery in the 19th century. You know, when, when slavery really started to come under attack from uh, from the anti-slavery movement in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, uh, one of the things that white Southerners really never wanted to talk about was the buying and selling of enslaved people. And so that that they knew was a weak spot. It made them look really even worse than slavery as a whole. It was sort of the worst elements of slavery. And so they would always say, well, this isn't something we really do very often. We don't really like buying and selling people. The real villains here are the slave traders, not slaveholders. And so that became sort of wrapped up in the defense of slavery. It extended into the post-slavery era as part of the defense, sort of the lost cause defense of slavery. Um, And I think that that has had a way of sort of seeping into American education as a whole. Now, sometimes that's sort of very kind of purposeful and and trying to sort of bury the past. Mm -hmm. But even when people wanted to re-excavate the past, that was an element of American slavery that just sort of never made its way deeply into uh, uh, American curricula. And it never made its way deeply into most Americans' minds. Mm-hmm. Whether we're talking about the the uh, transatlantic slave trade or America's internal slave trade, uh, let me ask you, since you went there, I'm going to follow you as I will throughout this hour. And we've got time to unpack this, so take your time. Um, but h- how, how would you critique 
yeah, that's the right word. How, how would you critique the American education system and the job that it does or does not do addressing these issues, either one, the slave trade transatlantically or America's internal slave trade? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we, we, we reached a point probably in the civil rights era and the sort of post-civil rights era in the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, where I, I think there probably was some progress made on that front, right? Again, the sort of lost cause defense of slavery, a, a sort of playing down of slavery as a central issue in American life, that sort of started to change and it started to become more incorporated into the way that American history was taught. But I think, especially in really recent years, we're starting to see a backlash against that again. Mm. Um, it becomes more difficult for teachers to talk about difficult subjects, particularly when it comes to race and slavery. And so my concern is really that whatever kind of advancement and progress and more um, uh, kind of comprehensive and, and more honest education that we started to see for a long time, is starting to slide again in a different direction. And, and where that goes and how we're able to fight those battles in the classroom, I, I think is still an open question. Yep. Where it goes and how we fight it uh, in the future, to your point, is in fact an open question. Uh, I'm not naive in asking this, but from your perspective as an educator, uh, I'm not trying to make you a politician, but as an educator, why do you think that retrenchment, that sliding, is starting to happen once again at this critical moment in America's history? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's difficult to uh, to answer that question without getting uh, into politics <laughs> in, in some way or another, right? Yeah. I mean, I I I, I think it's 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 not. I mean, it, it doesn't say anything sort of really out there to to observe that um, you know the 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 right in American politics and the Republican Party in American politics has started to use issues of race in the classroom as a kind of political weapon. Mm -hmm. um, everything that they bring up about so-called critical race theory, if you scratch the surface a little bit, what it really seems to amount to is any kind of conversation of race as a, as a core problem in American history, in American life. Um, and slavery is a sort of central element of that. So um, I, I, I don't think it's, it's uh, uh, exclusively a political issue, but I don't think it's separable from being a political issue. Mm. You, you live in the South. As I mentioned, you are a historian at the uh, University of Alabama, fine institution uh, with a pretty decent football team on top of that. Uh, but <laughs> let, 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 let me ask you why it is or what it is more, more appropriately. You think uh, our fellow white uh, citizens are afraid of when it comes to teaching this particular truth. I mean, it's 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 a fact. It happened. There was a transatlantic slave trade. There was an internal uh, slave trade, which we'll get to more in this hour. But wh why why are we why are we so afraid of that truth being taught in classrooms? Yeah, I mean that that's a tricky question for someone like me to answer because I don't think that there's anything to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. uh, from from what I from, from what I can tell. And my own sort of sense of it is a, a, a concern that if students, whether it's middle school, high school, college, whatever level of that, if students are taught the history of American slavery, the history of race in the United States in a way that is too critical, um, and I think by too critical, it's often critical at all, mm -hmm. um, then that will lead inevitably to kind of a broader critique of the United States as a country, to a broader critique of 
um, of American capitalism, of social and economic stratification. And the more that that happens, the more that people are concerned that, um, you know, anything from an, an insufficient lack of patriotism to, uh, to fears that some kind of it's going to lead down the road to, to some sort of radicalism in American life. Um, I, and I think it's really unfortunate. I don't, I don't think that teaching an honest history of the country necessarily leads to any of those things. Um, and I think a, a, a sort of dishonesty about that history, uh, if anything, does a, it not only does a disservice to what the country could be, I think it does a disservice to students. Mm-hmm. Uh, students are more thought, they're more thoughtful and they're more critical than we give them credit for. Um, and I think we all know that, that young people know a lie when they see it. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they know when they're not being told the truth. And I don't think we do them any favors by trying to hide things from them. Yeah. Um, I asked you earlier to critique America's education system vis-a-vis how you think we're doing um, teaching these truths, specifically about the transatlantic slave trade and America's internal slave trade. You gave me your assessment. Uh, let me ask you now, to before I, as I work my way into the subject more directly, let me ask you now to critique um, your profession uh, as a historian, <laughs> as a historian. And I, I, and I, and I ask that because, because, you know, historians are the ones who get the right to history, right? Uh, and, and, and years from now, they'll be writing about this moment that we are in so that we are for better or worse, like it or loathe it. Um, we are always subject to the read of history that is written by people like you written by historians. Uh, and I'm wondering why it is that there has not been more written about, uh, America's internal slave trade. You, 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 you intimated earlier in this conversation, why people didn't want to talk about it? It makes us look bad. We can we we can blame the the slave traders as and 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 not focus on the persons internally who were engaged in the slave trade. I get it from that perspective. That is to say, those who were involved in it. But historians, their job, your job, uh, is to write this history. To, you know, to 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 write the truth. Why has this part of the story, to your mind at least, been left out so much heretofore? Yeah, no, that's a great question and a, and a, and a challenging one. Um, you know, the, the history, the, you know, this is sort of the history of the history, right? Yeah. Uh, the history of the domestic slave trade, as it's been written, there really was very little written about it for a really long time. Um, there was a, a, a very prominent historian named Frederick Bancroft who wrote a big book about it in the 1930s. Um, there was a really kind of long gap after that before there was another important book written in the 80s. Um, and really, it's only been in the last maybe 25 years that you've started to get a more robust scholarship on the domestic slave trade. And, and I think that fits in, in a lot of ways, with kind of the broader trajectory of the way American historians dealt with American slavery for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, historians dealt with slavery broadly in a way that... Um, you know, until at least the 1950s made slavery seem like something that was not really so bad. It was not a system that was profitable. It was, you know, it was deeply embedded in these sort of racist tropes about people of African descent being suited for slavery. That didn't really start to change till after World War II. Um, and it took just a really long time of, of excavating the, the, the history of slavery more broadly before historians really started to turn their attention more and more toward things like the domestic slave trade. And, and I think that that 
turn has started to happen and has been going on for really a generation as a consequence of really starting to think about slavery's interaction with the broader economic system in the United States, thinking of slavery not merely as a social system and a labor system, but as an economic system. And I think that as historians have started to think about American economic development as it relates to slavery more and more, uh, the slave trade becomes central to that story. Mm. Let me ask you one more question about um, your profession, and then uh, we'll get straight way into the details about uh, the domestic slave trade in this country. Um, you've heard that old adage um, that um, the hunter tells his story, <laughs> and the story is always much more involved and much more heroic on his part. Uh, and the lion never gets to tell his story. Uh, so you ain't, you ain't heard the mm -hmm. whole story until the lion gets to tell you what really happened that day. Uh, all we hear, again, is the, is the hunter's story. I, I raise that uh, as one example of the way many of us view uh, uh, history in this country or the way it's taught. You've also heard the adage that, you know, the word history, it's his story, history, his story. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that leaves women out of the story. It leaves others out of the story. Um, let me just ask you a point blank question, which is the, which is this. How, how hmm, um, back up, I warned you it's going to be tough, Dr. Rothman, so back up just a second here. That's <laughs> but, okay. All right, I, I know you can handle it. Um, how much do you think that we can really trust and believe the history that we have been given vis-a-vis -vis this country, its founding? I mean, I mean, broad, I, know, I know it's a very generic question. Broadly speaking, do you think that we've been told, um, you know, broadly speaking, again, the, the truth about this country or or, ha or has that been shaded to some degree by historians writ large? So that that is a, that's a big question. Um, and I think that, you know, one other thing that I would that I would add that your question made me think of with regard to the history of American slavery mm -hmm. is that. You know, it, it's not just broadly the trajectory of, of the history of slavery and history of race. It's also, uh, you know, you, you started to see um, uh, African-American history as a field become mm -hmm. a much more significant part of the historical profession. You started to see black historians as academics become a much more prominent part of the historical profession. Um, and that has also obviously changed the story in a lot of ways. It has changed who the who the protagonists of our history are. It has changed uh, the perspective that people bring to the American past. Um, you know, whether or not you can you can trust that history, whether or not you think that, um, you know, uh, uh, everybody's story has been well served. I, I don't think you can say that everyone's story has been equally served over time. Um, I think we do a better job of that now than we used to. Um, but I, I I, I do like to think that if if people are willing to read widely enough, mm -hmm. right, you've got to you've got to sort of take in enough different kinds of books and enough different kinds of subjects written by enough different kinds of historians that that the story we tell now, at least among professional historians, is better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Now, how long that takes to sort of make its way into textbooks and high schools and college classes that's a slow and gradual process. Um, but I, I absolutely understand the skepticism that many people bring to the historical profession, that many people bring into a classroom. 
Uh, I think critiques like that are very, very valid. And I, I, honestly, I think the more that we hear them, the better off that we're going to be in terms of telling that story. Mm-hmm. Um, we can only bring, we can, each of us can only bring to the table the perspective that we have. And so we need to hear more voices in order to make that perspective more, more holistic and more fair. Um, and I think more equitable. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't so artful in, in, uh, in, in my phraseology and in, in, in posing the question. And I wasn't artful in part because I, I didn't want to offend you. I was trying to try to get it out the right way. Oh, no. Uh, you're, no you're, I'm a very difficult person to offend. <laughs> you, you sound like me. Your, uh, but your, your answer was far better than my, than my question, but you, you got to what I wanted to get to. Uh, and that is that, you know, I talk to an audience every day who is, is skeptical of a lot of things, as am I. Mm-hmm. Uh, even basic stuff. I mean, I mean think, think about this. It's, it's historians who taught us for years and years and years that Columbus discovered America. I mean, and when he got here, it was just him. He, you know, the, the, the natives weren't here. He didn't bump into nobody. He just discovered them. I mean, I mean, it's it's as rudimentary and fundamental and basic as that, all the way up to what we're going to talk about the rest of this hour, uh, not just the transatlantic slave trade, but indeed uh, domestic slave trading here in this country. And so I, it just, I just wanted to pivot just for a second uh, to ask a, 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 a brilliant historian, uh, an honored historian, a highly regarded historian such as yourself, you know, what he makes of this profession. And, and, and frankly, it's my word, not yours, the lies, the, 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 the falsehoods we've been told for years by people who call themselves historians. That said, when we come forward, uh, this historian is a truthful historian. His name is Joshua D. Rothman, University of Alabama, and he is going to download us more uh, on America's domestic slave trade. That is the focus of this hour. We'll continue with him when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports. You are listening, and we're glad about it, to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. So glad to have you in with us in this hour as we continue our conversation now with Dr. Joshua D. Rothman, award-winning historian and chair of the Department of History, Department of History, that is, at the University of Alabama. Uh, He traveled to 30 states uh, to research the disturbing story of America's internal slave trade. His text is called The Ledger and the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America. Uh, That is the name of his text, and uh, we are delighted to have him on in this hour, we're talking about not just the transatlantic slave trade, but uh, that's the part you do know. Today, we're talking about the part you don't know, uh, the domestic slave trade. And I want to just uh, pass the mic to him right now. Uh, no real question here, Dr. Rothman, except to ask you to tell us about America's domestic slave trade. It's all yours. Uh, sure. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I think you gave a, a, a decent overview of it at the, the outset of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 the transatlantic slave trade uh, carried on for hundreds of years. Um, when the Constitution was, uh, was ratified in 1780s, there's a, there's a provision in the Constitution that said, um, you know, we're, we're, Congress can't do anything about the transatlantic slave trade for 20 years. Um, but after that, it could be legislated against. And, and everybody sort of knew, everyone who was part of the, the convention sort of knew that when 1808 came around, Congress was probably going to ban the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the irony of, of doing that is when they passed the law to ban the transatlantic slave trade, they also put in that same law regulations for the domestic slave trade. <laughs> so even as they're banning one slave trade, they're actually putting the federal stamp of approval on a different slave trade. And so trading in 
enslaved people within the boundaries of the United States was entirely legal. It's protected by federal law. It's protected by most state laws. Um, and basically what goes on is you have people buying and selling enslaved people both within the boundaries of individual states um, and pretty extensively people being sold in places like Maryland and Virginia and other parts of the Upper South. And they're being forcibly migrated across state lines, sometimes for hundreds, if not more than a thousand miles, uh, mostly to the deep south, places like Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Let me let me cut um, let me let me cut it. Over the, let me let me cut yeah, it. Let me, I'm sorry. Let me cut it one quick second. I don't want I don't want you to get too far afield here. Uh-huh. Now, uh, pass the mic back to me. <laughs> okay. uh, no. Um, when when to your point, when it became clear that we were going to outlaw uh, legally in this country the transatlantic slave trade, and to your point, we did that. And then we wrote into they, not we, I wasn't involved in it. My ancestors were not involved in this. Mm-hmm. But then they wrote into the law uh, uh, provisions allowing for the domestic slave trade. I'm not, again, I'm not naive in asking this, but why end the transatlantic slave trade? Either you believe in slavery or you don't. Why end the transatlantic slave trade, but then write into the law a way to do it internally? What was that about? Yeah, so that's a great question. That's a, it's a question people ask a lot because I think for us, it doesn't make any sense, right? If you're mm-hmm. against trading in people, then you're against trading in people. But at the time, you know, the the, the slaveholders and and, and, and other white Americans didn't necessarily see things that way, right? So Mm -hmm. they banned the transatlantic trade. In part, it's it's an economic issue, right? Most states by that point, places like Maryland, Virginia, um, places that still recognize slavery in, in the, in the North, places that were starting to phase slavery out, these were places that felt like they had enough of an enslaved population. They didn't see the need for importing any more people from overseas. And places that had a lot of enslaved people saw a market, right? Mm -hmm. If you could shut off the market of people being brought in from outside the country, then new slaveholders would only be able to purchase people inside the country, right? So it's a way of protecting their own own market for Mm. enslaved people. But when it comes to moral issues, and this is really more to your question, right, Mm -hmm. there were – there certainly were people who felt that buying and selling people as a moral issue was a singular thing. If it's wrong, it's wrong. It ought to be outlawed altogether. But there also were a lot of people who felt like or who believed that the difference between the two was that the transatlantic slave trade – was taking people in Africa who were free people and enslaving them, right? And that some people believed, okay, well, that's wrong, is enslaving free people. But people who were already enslaved, (laughs) they felt more comfortable. They were like, okay, well, they're already enslaved, so we can buy and sell those people. Again, it's not something they're necessarily comfortable with, but they do feel like there's a moral distinction to be drawn between the two. Now, for us today, we look at that, and that's just it's completely absurd, right? Mm-hmm. It makes no sense to us. But to the extent that there could be a moral difference, why ban one slave trade and not the other, for, there were people who approached it morally and, say, and could, could justify to, in their own minds why one was okay and one wasn't. Mm. How robust was this trading? Oh, extremely. Um, it, 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 it comes in ebbs and flows. There are times when it's clearly more substantive than others. Um, but over the course of uh, you know, the, the 50 years or so before the Civil War, um, hundreds of thousands of people are forcibly migrated across state lines. In the end, it was more than a million people 
are moved across state lines. Um, at least a million more are traded within individual states. Um, to the best that we're able to, uh, uh, to to sort of document this and sort of figure out what that meant for enslaved people, um, we know that basically one out of every two marriages of enslaved people uh, was broken up as a consequence of sale or, or, or trade. Uh, we know that if you were a young person in the Upper South, you had basically about a one in three chance of being sold at some point in your life. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a business that is incredibly profitable for, uh, for white slave traders and slave holders. Um, and it's a business that is incredibly destructive and disruptive for, uh, for black families and black communities. To your point now, um, and I, I know the audience heard what I just heard. I want to come back to it and put a finer point on it. Um, but when you think about the contemporary conversations, here we are in late modernity, and we're having conversations all the time about the peril that the black family finds itself in. And again, that conversation, speaking of robust, that conversation is robust on this station and elsewhere. Um, again, always in these conversations about the state of the future of the peril of the black family. Uh, it's a conversation that we have, you know, uh, you know, quite, quite frequently. And you can't have that conversation without linking it back to what I just heard Professor Rothman say a moment ago. And this is why I love doing this show. I mean, I come in here every day and I leave smarter than when I came in because as much of this stuff as I know, um, I know that I'm, I'm going to learn something every day I come in here. I did not know that one out of every two marriages, essentially, were disrupted, were broken up because of this domestic slave trading. One out of two. I was just in conversation with some folks the other day about the, the divorce rate in this country right now. Uh, and it's pretty uh, it's pretty startling to, to consider the divorce rate in America at the moment. But this we're not we're here. We're not talking about divorces. We're talking about marriages that are being deliberately broken up. But that is that is beyond arresting, Dr. Rothman, to hear you say that one out of every two marriages. And these are obviously primarily black folk, Africans, um, African-Americans, one out of every two of those marriages broken up because of domestic because of internal slave trading that that. That just that, that that backed me up for a second, Professor Rothman. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's not always a function of, of the trade, right? It can be, you know, somebody uh, a slaveholder dies, right, and his right. estate is broken up. Um, but but the 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 disruptiveness uh, that's introduced to black families and black marriages by slavery and by by uh, uh, you know by by estates being broken up, by people being bought and sold. Um, is very extensive. And, and you know, I, I think in order to connect it to today's issues, I think is, is challenging, right? Because there's a lot of history between now sure. and then. And I think, uh, but I think it's important also to point out that, you know, this wasn't, this wasn't the kind of thing that enslaved people, they, they never got used to this, right? Mm. This wasn't something that, well, it happened all the time and sort of was accepted as a matter of course. This is something that enslaved people fought against constantly. Yeah. Um, all they want to do is try to preserve their families, stay with the people they love, try to do whatever they can to make sure that their 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 spouses and their children are all held together. Right. The, yeah. the sort of nuclear family unit 
is an aspiration for enslaved people as much as it is for, for white Americans. Um, it's just something that is, it's extremely vulnerable, and slavery introduces that vulnerability as a matter of course. Yep. I hear your critique, uh, and when we come forward, I want to respond to that. Um, I said a moment ago that you can't talk about the peril that the black family's in today without linking it back to this. I hear the critique Professor Rothman uh, offers. Let me respond to that when we come forward, because uh, um, I got a response to that. Um, I'll give it to you in just a second. You're listening to KBLA Talk 15. I'm Tavis Molly. This is KBLA Talk for today. So glad to have you with us in this hour. As we continue our conversation now with the brilliant historian, Dr. Joshua D. Rothman, as we're talking uh, not about the transatlantic slave trade, which you may know about, but about the domestic slave trade, um, uh, where there were more than one million enslaved people who had uh, uh, forcibly been moved across state lines in their own country, hundreds of thousands more, uh, bought and sold within individual states. And this is part of the story uh, black folk in America that we don't know. We talk a bit about uh, the, the Atlantic, uh, the transatlantic slave trade here and there, but never so much about the domestic slave trade. And his book is called uh, The Ledger and the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America. And so he's giving us an insight into internal the domestic slave trade inside this country. I said a moment ago um, that uh, it seems to me that you can't talk about the peril that the black family is facing today without connecting it to some data that uh, Professor Rothman shared with us earlier. And that is that during this period uh, of American history, one out of two marriages, we're talking about black folk here, one out of two African, African-American marriages were broken up because of uh, sale or uh, the, the over the uh, slaveholder dies and the state gets broken up. But all these issues connected to that horrific period of American history uh, led to one in two marriages of our people uh, being uh, broken up. And I said that I don't think you can talk about, again, the drama that black families face today without connecting it to that. Let me offer two examples of why I say that. Uh, one of the best conversations I had last year, and if you didn't hear it, let me invite you again. This is why we do podcasts. We do the live terrestrial show every day. And every day at the beginning of my show, I tell you, if you miss us in real time, check out the podcast. Uh, last year, one of the best conversations I had was with a professor named uh, Dorothy Roberts, brilliant professor, and she'd been researching uh, our welfare system for years. And she wrote a book that was one of the best books of the year called Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition, here's that word, How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Again, the book title is Torn Apart. How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. She argues essentially in that book, and again, what an amazing conversation. Check out the podcast. She argues that the child welfare system was in fact built to, not a consequence of, but in fact built to destroy black families, to keep black families apart. That's her critique of our system. Secondly, law enforcement. I ain't got to tell you this. The ways in which black communities are targeted by law enforcement uh, and black men and sometimes increasingly black women are taken out of the home. When those men are taken out of the homes, taken out of the community, you know what happens. But they're targeted by law enforcement. I ain't got enough time. I could do this all day long if I had more time. But there are ways in which I believe our system as currently structured, the government does things that makes it difficult. And don't get me started talking about economics. Um, it makes it difficult to keep African-American families together. That was the source of my point, uh, the underpinning of my point when I said, I don't think you can talk about the drama and the trauma that black families are enduring today, making it difficult to stay together without understanding historically 
that this ain't nothing new. This happened way back in the day. I rest my case. Does that make sense to you at all, Doctor Doctor Rothman? Any, is my argument is my argument working for you, sir? Oh yeah, no, and that, to that extent, I, I think I would agree with you. I, I, I all I would say is that there's right there's a, there's a lot of history between 1865 and now, right. but I absolutely agree with you that you can't understand what we're seeing now. Um, and the kinds of things that you're talking about today without understanding the, the long history yeah. um, of, of, of those kinds of issues. That I would agree with. For good, sure. good, good, good. So let, I got about five minutes left in this conversation. Let me circle back then to your point about understanding. Um, how does our better understanding the domestic slave trade change anything? How does it I mean, aside from the fact that, we'd be, that we would be uh, we would be in this audience is now more enlightened and more empowered. They've got more information beyond beyond the data points. How does how would our understanding the domestic slave trade better as a country change anything, affect anything in real time? So that's a that's a hard question because I think everybody takes uh, takes what they learn about history and and goes down different roads with it. Sure, right. Mm-hmm. Um, we can we can we can we can describe what we describe. We can make the arguments that we argue. What people do with it is kind of up to them. Um, but I would say that there's there's a couple of things that we ought to uh, uh, make sort of realign the way we think about American slavery and what it means to uh, to American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I think is that. It changes the picture of American slavery that we have, that many people have in their minds, right? Many people think of American slavery, and the first thing that comes to mind is the image of a plantation, Mm -hmm. right? Lots of people working on a farm. Um, And that certainly is a very real component of American slavery. Uh, The plantation, in some ways, is, is... is you could for a long time people argued that was a central institution of American slavery, Um, but I also think that slavery is a system that is constantly on the move. Right. I mean, that is one of the things that that the slave trade demonstrates to us is that the slave trade is a system that's in constant motion. It's very dynamic. People are being forcibly moved all the time. And in the same way that they are trying, enslaved people are trying as hard as they can to survive and to sustain a, a, a viable life and a family life and a community for themselves, there's always that vulnerability and there's always that sense that it could come apart at any moment. Um, and there's also movement in the other direction, right? Because we also know that people who are bought and sold, uh, they flee. Uh, we know that they run from American slavery. Um, and so that kind of motion is constantly part of the system. Uh, the other thing that I think we, we need to, to kind of reassess is we often think of slavery as a system that is designed basically to put people in, in labor, extract their labor, um, and then turn that into profit. And that is certainly true. But we also need to understand that enslaved people in the United States before the Civil War, they are an asset class, right? They are capital in human form, um, and that is embedded in a larger system of American capital and American capitalism. And so I think that also kind of reorients our understanding of what American slavery is, the kind of contributions that enslaved people are forced to make to the United States, um, and the things that are taken from them in the course of making those contributions. And so what people do with that understanding of American slavery, I think, is ultimately in the minds of every individual person. But I think that learning more about the domestic slave trade will alter people's sense of what they think slavery was. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the end game here, if, if we can uh, alter, or I'll put another way, correct uh, the image that we have of slavery, uh, with a more accurate illustration of what it really was, uh, more accurate depiction of what it really was, 
Um, how does that impact you think the conversation we have about it, about the institution? Yeah, and that, that's a really tough one, right? I mean, I think because, uh, look, one question I get a lot uh, when I give talks about the book is people will ask me about things like reparations, mm-hmm. right? What, are, what, are, what, is the, what does the aftermath of slavery look like? Um, I'm not a scholar of reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, uh, you know, I, I have my own kind of personal opinions about what that looks like, sure. but, um, but I, I don't have a way of saying, okay, here's what I think the plan ought to be. But one thing that I think that this does in terms of what it means for today is it, it makes us sort of think about, again, the same way you think about sort of the long history of black families and, and black communities in this country. I think we also need to sort of think about the long history of economic and social inequality mm-hmm. in this country, right? Mm-hmm. Not all, not everything is sort of a legacy of, you know, Jim Crow segregation. Not everything is a consequence of things like mass incarceration. There's a much longer and deeper history to where these sorts of inequalities come from. And we need whatever we decide to do about that in the present. It's something that we need to reckon with as a matter of the past. I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I've learned a great deal, uh, courtesy of Dr. Joshua D. Rothman, award-winning historian and chair for the Department of History at the University of Alabama. Traveled all across the country researching this particular subject, uh, the domestic slave trade, and the result of that is a text called The Ledger and the Chain, How Domestic Slave Traders Shaped America. I thought the timing of this conversation was uh, pretty propitious, given that we are headed into uh, a few days from now, Black History Month. We start early around here. Of course, around here, we're Black History every day, but you already know that. Uh, Professor Rothman, good to have you on this program, sir. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. My great delight. When we come forward, more of Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580.